morning, and indeed this morning is going to be a little different, where instead of our regularly scheduled Bible exposition, we're going to be tackling some of your questions and a few Q&A sermons. Something I do every couple of years, I think it's valuable to give the congregation a chance to ask some of your most challenging questions in an effort to find some clear answers. And granted, you're Bereans, you should be searching and studying the scriptures yourselves. You should be signifying answers to your own burning questions. If you're really plagued by a question of understanding, then I would hope that you yourself wouldn't rest until you could find some of your own answers by studying the word. But that being said, even in an age of Google, it can still be sometimes very hard to find just a reliable answer to some of your most challenging questions. And so here we are over the next several weeks to try and answer some of your questions from the scriptures, hopefully providing some light and clarity. And even if you didn't submit a question, I hope everyone will benefit just by seeing the scriptures unfolded together. Now, at first, I have to say the questions trickled in, but then they, they really came in, so I ended up with about 40. <laughs> I got more than I bargained for. So needless to say, we won't answer all of them. Some of the, the quicker, simpler ones I'll answer directly via email. But I've chosen the rest and organized them in a way that's hopefully profitable for all. In the, the two weeks to follow, we're going to focus on some really big interpretation questions, theology, counseling, worldview questions. But for this first week, I've, I've set up kind of an opening barrage of just straight up Bible and theology questions. So without further ado, we're just going to begin. Follow along. And I encourage you to just turn your Bibles to each of these passages. That's the best way to, to track. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 2 with the question of just what is the meaning of Luke chapter 2, verse 35, just a, a Bible, straight up Bible question. What's the meaning of Luke 2.35? You can turn there. It's a good place to start because we just finished going through some Advent passages in Matthew, and this takes us to an Advent passage in Luke. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And they're assuming the prophet greets them, he blesses them. And then he says this to Mary in verses 34 and 35. Luke 2.34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Question basically concerns verse 35, just what does all this mean? Simeon is clearly prophesying that this Messiah figure would be polarizing. In verse 34, which was unexpected. I mean, surely when the Messiah comes, everyone in Israel will rally around him, right? Well, not so much. And through this child, some in Israel will fall while others will rise. This previews the acceptance of Jesus among the poor and the meek. But his rejection among the the powerful, the, the strong, namely the religious leaders. And that rejection will in turn break Mary's heart. It will pierce her soul. That's a figure of speech referring to Mary's grief, which is something I think any mother would understand. How would you feel if a a mob of people hated your son, reviled him, and then attacked him while you just stand there helpless? This would grieve Mary all the more because she knew her son was the Messiah. And then to, to watch as the religious leaders of Israel would one day be the ones to crucify him, that would pierce her soul with untold grief. But this rejection of the Messiah would, in turn, he says, reveal thoughts from many hearts. And this is likewise talking about those who reject Jesus. 
chiefly the, the religious leaders and the apostate Jews. They carried about themselves a veneer of righteousness, a veneer of worshiping God. But their rejection of this child will, in the end, reveal that the true thoughts of their hearts, that they don't know God, they're far from God, they are whitewashed tombs. In the end, God has appointed their fall. They will fall, while the meek and those who seek Christ will inherit the earth. Well, since we're in Luke, turn to Luke chapter 13. We're going to move kind of quickly with some of these. We do have a lot of ground to cover. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 is the next question, just a straight up, what is happening In Luke 13, verse 1. What is happening in Luke 13, verse 1? And after you read this verse, you'd probably have the same question. Luke 13, 1 says, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So this person read that verse and just wants to know, like, what is that talking about? And you probably have the same question. Well, back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching a massive crowd of people, and periodically some Jews come up to him with questions or objections. Chapter 13, verse 1, it's on the same occasion, so he's still teaching that crowd. We learn another group of Jews comes up to him with a report. They have a bad report about how Pontius Pilate killed some Galilean Jews. This report is of an event that's otherwise unrecorded, but it fits Pilate's character perfectly. Apparently, there was a group of Galilean Jews who was offering sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, which is the only place sacrifices were made. But for some reason, perhaps they were insurrectionists, but Pilate had them killed while they were sacrificing, such that their sacrifice, or rather their blood mixed with the sacrifices. And to the Jews, this was a most dishonorable and defiling way to die. Now, no question is recorded by this group, but it's evident from Christ's response that that they brought this question or this report to Jesus to seemingly confirm their retribution theology. Most Jews of the day subscribe to what we call retribution theology, which simply states that if, if something bad happens to you, you must have done something bad to deserve it. You must have been a great sinner. And these, these Jerusalem Jews despised Galilean Jews. So it could be that this group is trying to get Jesus to affirm their superior position over these Galilean Jews. This might even be a dig at Jesus, who in Luke's gospel is called a Galilean a few times. But of course, Jesus refutes them. Even though they didn't ask a question, he knows and he refutes them. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And it's true that these Galileans suffered a terrible fate. But does that by itself mean they were greater sinners? Almost every Jew would say yes, but Jesus says no. And the point is, all sinners are going to perish one way or another. It doesn't matter how you go out, whether peacefully in your sleep or, or violently, You're all going to perish, and he's basically saying, you better repent lest you perish forever. And furthermore, Jesus goes on to use this opportunity to rebuke these Jews from the south who are in danger of perishing because they relied mostly on their heritage to save them. But as he says hereafter in the parable of the fig tree, which follows, that unless you bear fruit, you too will be cut down. This is a fitting word 
of warning, even for us in the church today. It's, it's not good enough to just come to church, to attend church, to call yourself a Christian, to be around Christians. That does not save you. That does not make you better than that great sinner on the outside. The reality is everyone is a great sinner. The only question is, have you yourself truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ? That's the only way to escape the second death. Do so lest you yourself perish. Now, here's another question to try and clear up uh, an interesting passage. Question three, what is happening in Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26? Go all the way back to Exodus 4. It's just another question of what is happening here. And when you read this passage especially, this wins for the most bizarre passage for this week. This is one that you read and, and realize what is happening here. Exodus 4, 24 through 26. This takes place right after the burning bush where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. He calls him and commissions him to uh, deliver Israel. Moses is to go before Pharaoh and demand that he let the people go. Moses and his family were living in Midian at this time. They'd fled Egypt 40 years before. Now it's time to return per the Lord's calling. So they saddle up some donkeys. They head down to Egypt, Moses, his whole family. But then we get this almost out of the blue passage, verses 24 through 26. It says, now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephora, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So someone wants to know, plain and simple, like what on earth is happening here? And like I said before, you probably now have the same question. You never knew you had this question, but now you do. The Moses and his family, they've camped for the night on their way down to Egypt. Then it says the Lord has come to them in judgment. This is almost certainly the angel of the Lord, which is what the Septuagint says. But nonetheless, God has come to put him to death. Verse 24. Who's the him? You assume at first Moses, and it could be. But the name of Moses does not actually appear in these three verses. All we have are pronouns. If you see the name of Moses, it was added by a translator just to try and clear things up. But I actually think for the context that the angel of the Lord this night came to kill Moses's firstborn son, Gershom, who was uncircumcised. Why would I say that? Well, look at the previous two verses. Right before this, God reminds Moses what to say to Pharaoh when he gets to Egypt. Verse 22, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go, Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Here we learn that Moses is told to warn Pharaoh in advance of the 10th plague, which was meant to be the ultimate judgment on Egypt for their sin, which was the death of the firstborn. And this is the type of judgment that will befall those who persist in their rebellion against this God. But here's the thing. In a sense, Moses himself was persisting in his rebellion 
against God. This is evident in the fact that he had failed to circumcise his son according to the covenant. Moses knew better, but he had never circumcised his firstborn son, Gershom, probably in deference to his wife. Zipporah was a Midianite, not a Jew. And she recognizes at this point, though, the threat posed by the angel of the Lord. And she springs into action. Why Moses didn't spring into action, the text doesn't say. Maybe perhaps she just got to her son first, realizing imminent danger. But Zipporah is the one to then circumcise him with a stone flint. And this was a gruesome act. Gershom is not an infant anymore. And therefore, she rebukes Moses for what he basically made her do, what he made her go through. She says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. It seems clear that she's still repulsed by what she now had to do. But she had to do it. She did it. And it worked. The angel of the Lord relented and passed them by. So it appears that what's going on here is that the Lord was going to kill Moses' own firstborn son for the same reason he would later kill the firstborn in Egypt for persistence in rebellion. This is yet another passage in Exodus that, that stresses the white, hot holiness of this God. He's not to be trifled with. That God demands total obedience especially among his representatives, like Moses. How can Moses lead this people into covenant obedience if he himself is not being radically obedient to the covenant? Moses must learn to treat this God and his covenant as holy, that the people might learn to treat this God and his covenant as holy. So it goes for all people today, especially leaders word to all of you, especially those in any leadership over God's people, to regard God as holy. Do not trifle with his holiness. But thankfully, though, there's a note of, of grace because the Lord relented, right? I mean, God is holy, but he's still forgiving. Those who repent and obey will find his mercy. And so if you look at your life and if you yourself see any persistent sin, any sin that shouldn't be there, and your eyes are open to it, then you would do well to be like Zipporah and radically amputate that sin from your life, just like Jesus likewise taught. All right, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4. There's a pair of questions from 1 Timothy, so might as well do them both. Question number four. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, what does it mean that Timothy's spiritual gift was given through prophetic utterance? What does it mean when it says Timothy's spiritual gift was given through prophetic utterance? This passage in 1 Timothy 4 is just a bunch of Paul's admonitions directly to Timothy in the ministry. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Verse 13, give attention to exhortation and teaching and, and so on. Timothy is basically serving as a senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul is giving him some rapid fire reminders. And in the midst, he says, verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now, first off, it's pretty obvious that the spiritual gift Paul has in mind here is teaching. He just mentioned teaching in verse 13. Again, in the next two verses, he's going to mention Timothy's teaching as well. Verse 14 is essentially saying he must not neglect his gift of teaching, but be devoted to it, grow in it, 
and excel in it. And that's all fine. I don't think anyone disputes Timothy had the gift of teaching. But the question is, what does it mean to say this gift was bestowed on Timothy? It says through prophetic utterance. That just means through a prophecy. And then it says with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Well, off the bat, you should see this is a descriptive passage. And we learned it is unique to Timothy. That's evident from chapter 1, verse 18. You can go back there and read chapter 1, verse 18. Back there, we learned that after his salvation, Timothy himself was the subject of prophecy. Someone with the gift of prophecy prophesied over Timothy. And they evidently said that he would be a mighty teacher in Christ's church. We don't have the prophecy, but it's pretty obvious it was about him as a teacher. It's very possible that Paul himself was the one who prophesied Timothy's teaching gift in the church. Here in chapter 4, Paul now reminds Timothy of his prophetic calling to encourage him in boldness. Now, we can safely say that Paul is not suggesting that this prophet gave Timothy the gift of teaching. We know that the Lord Jesus alone gives gifts to his church as he wills. But in a manner of speaking, in Timothy's unique case, his spiritual gift of teaching was bestowed on him or or revealed to him prophetically in advance, long before he even knew about it. Timothy's gift of teaching was then later confirmed, as Paul says, by the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The term presbytery just refers to the, the collection of elders in a local church. And as custom, they laid their hands on a man in order to publicly recognize his ministry calling. It's not a mystical practice of transferring power to someone, but merely a, an outward symbol of recognizing someone's calling to the ministry. Hence the warning down in verse 22 of chapter 4. He says, do not, uh, do not lay hands on anybody too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Chapter 5, rather. And this connection comes in the context of church elders. They must not lay their hands on a man too hastily, meaning they must not recognize someone as an elder too quickly, lest he falls and they then share in some of that responsibility. But regarding Timothy, as he was commissioned to lead the Ephesian church, primarily through his teaching ministry, the elders laid their hands on him, thereby publicly affirming his gifting and his calling. So in all, that's what 1 Timothy 4.14 means. You get the picture that Timothy himself was a man of destiny. Not in the sense of atheistic fate, but in the sense of of divine providence. God had marked him out for teaching service early on through a prophet. Now though, Timothy must still fulfill his ministry with boldness. And the same goes for you and me. No one may have prophesied over you, telling you in advance what your spiritual gift would be. But the Lord Jesus still has given to you if you're a believer in his church, some spiritual gifting. And so likewise, we can say, do not neglect your gifting. You and I are likewise expected to diligently pursue and use our gifting for the Lord, just as Timothy. Now, while we're, out, we're close, uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Question number 5 concerns verse 21. 1 Timothy five twenty-one. question is, is elect used in a different way with regard to angels? 
verse 21 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen or literally elect angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This word for chosen is electos in Greek, the same word for elect. This is the one only passage that refers to angels as elect. And so the question is, does this mean the same thing for angels as it means for us when we're called elect? Well, the answer is a yes and a no. Believers are often called elect or chosen in scripture. But for what are they chosen? They're chosen for salvation. We are elect unto saving grace. These angels are sovereignly chosen by God in the same way, but not for the same thing. They're not elect unto salvation. They're elect unto preservation. If you recall, the angels were created in a state of holiness, meaning they don't need salvation. In God's sovereign will, he allowed some of the angels to fall, to leave their domain. And so Satan and a third of the angels fell and entered a state of unholiness and rebellion. But the remaining angels, they're referred to as the holy angels. And here, the elect angels, they're chosen. Chosen for what? Not salvation, but preservation. God has chosen them to be preserved in that state of holiness. But yes, overall, this verse confirms that that God's sovereignty extends even over the angels. God is sovereign in salvation, and he's sovereign in preservation. He's sovereign over mankind, and he's sovereign over angel kind. All over scripture, you just can't escape the fact that God's sovereign will is ultimately done. From humans to angels, those who partake in his kingdom, they'll be there because they were chosen to be there, which is why God alone always gets all the glory from both humans and angels. One day we're going to join the angels in singing praise to God, thanking him for our undeserved choice. Now let's keep going here. We, we have a lot of ground to cover, so I know we're moving kind of fast, but let's continue. You can go to Matthew 24. We're continue, carrying on with these kind of Bible exposition questions. Rapid fire. Question six. What is the meaning of Matthew 24 verses 40 and 41? Matthew 24, 40 through 41. This will also tra- uh, transition us to some end times questions. Every time I've done these Q&As over the past 10 years, there's always some end times questions without fail. It piques people's interest, and we have a few here. This one, though, comes from the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says this, Matthew 24, 40 through 41. He says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. This person wants to know who's taken here, to whom does this refer, and what's the connection to the rapture? Jesus, this is a very common question. He's talking end times in his Olivet Discourse. He mentions people being taken, people being left. That naturally evokes rapture thoughts in people's minds. It's an event where believers are caught up together with the Lord in the air. You can read about that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. But in these verses, Jesus is not talking about the rapture. A different word is used for taken here. And most importantly, 
the context simply indicates he's talking about judgment. These people are being taken in judgment, not taken in rescue. The previous verses talk about the second coming, where Jesus compares it to the days of Noah before the flood. Namely, how no one expected or understood the coming flood. Look back at the previous verses, verse 38. He says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and what? Took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. You had wicked men living in immorality. They had no idea judgment was coming upon them. But when it came, it, it took them away. Suddenly and unexpectedly. And what Christ is saying is that when he returns, the second coming, that the same thing's going to happen. The wicked will be taken in judgment, suddenly and unexpectedly. That's the point he's making. This is not akin to the rapture. This is more akin to the sheep and goats judgment later in Matthew 25. It's when Jesus comes in his glory. All the nations are gathered before him. Then they're separated where the believers are gathered and enter the kingdom and the unbelievers perish eternally. So this is not a verse of the rapture. This is a verse of being taken in judgment. Now, speaking of the rapture, though, someone asked a rapture question like almost always happens. Eventually, you add up all the Q&As. You'll get a pretty sound theology over the years on the rapture. Question number seven. It says, should we tell unbelieving family members that after the rapture, they should repent and turn to the Lord? Should we tell unbelieving family members that after the rapture, they should repent and turn to the Lord. Person adds, I thought that was a time for Israel and that there would be a hardening of Gentile hearts. So this question is written from a pre-tribulational rapture view, which simply states that the church is taken or raptured, caught up from this earth before that seven-year tribulation time. And in that moment, the only people left on the planet are unbelievers. So if you can picture such a thing happening then you'd logically hope that those who are left behind would be so shocked that they'd be finally convinced that the gospel is true. I mean, the rapture event sounds pretty shocking. And so this person is wondering that hopefully, you know, does that mean some people will be shocked into their senses? Should we warn them? And what if you have a hardened, unbelieving family member right now? They're, They're hardened to the gospel. Should you just like warn them? Like, hey, if this thing actually happens, you see a bunch of people vanish, then you better repent and believe then. Should we do that? Well, I would say, again, a yes and a no. It's never wrong to tell someone to repent and believe, right? That, that's never a bad thing. But listen, today is always the day of salvation. Today. Here are a few things we know about the tribulation time. Yes, it is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. That national Israel comes back to the forefront of God's kingdom plans. That's not to the exclusion of the rest of the nations. God's plan has always been for all the nations. There's still going to be plenty of Gentile salvation even during the tribulation. Christ himself said the gospel will be preached to all the nations during this time. Revelation 7-9 adds that a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue come to salvation in the tribulation. Some will be preserved. Some will be martyred. But despite the wrath and calamity on the earth, God always preserves a remnant. 
and many will be drawn to salvation. So, like, it's not wrong to hope that your family member who's presently hardened to the gospel might be among those who are saved during that time, if it happens during our lifetime. But at the same time, I would counsel you not to make that your hope or your primary evangelistic tactic. You know, for one, the tribulation is also a time of unprecedented deception. Many who are hardened in sin now grow even harder in sin at that time. Revelation, Revelation 16 speaks of God's wrath falling on the earth. It is plaguing men, but it says, even still, they refuse to repent so as to give God glory. Now, I wouldn't put too much stock into the hope that your loved one will be convinced to believe just because they witness the rapture. You have to remember that the problem of unbelief is not a problem of signs and evidence. People don't believe because they lack signs and evidence. No, rather, people don't believe because they love their sin. They choose to rebel against their creator. No amount of signs will convince them otherwise. That God just has to open their hearts. Just like Jesus taught in the parable in Luke 16, Even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. Just because someone witnesses the rapture, that by itself is not going to suddenly shock them to their senses and make them believe. God must open their hearts. He could do so then, but today is the day of salvation. So far better to continue to plead with your hardened loved one to repent and believe today before it really is too late. Pray that God would do what only he can do today. All right, question number eight. One more question on end times. A little more involved. This question, it says, The prophecy of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, speaks of 70 weeks and the Messiah. Can it be demonstrated clearly through Scripture that a 2,000-year gap should be inserted between week 69 and week 70? So should there be a a 2,000-year gap between week 69, week 70, of Daniel's big 70-week prophecy? This is a question on the timing of biblical prophecy, which is an interest, I think, to everyone. Specifically, what is the timing of Daniel's 70th week? Well, you can't do this without turning to Daniel 9. So if you haven't already, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Here the angel Gabriel gives Daniel a prophecy about the future in response to Daniel's intercession for his people. This is near the tail end of Israel's 70-year captivity. And so we find, what what more did God have in store for this people? It's only four verses, but it's kind of long. So follow along as I read Daniel 9, 24 through 27. The angel says to him, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. 
desolations are determined. Verse 27 says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this is a prophecy concerning 70 weeks. Literally, it says 70 sevens. These sevens refer to years. So this prophecy is of the next 490 years in Israel's history. There's a break in this prophetic timeline, though. We learn in verse 26 that after the first 69 weeks altogether, or 483 years, the Messiah will come. But then he'll be killed. And then even the city, Jerusalem, and its temple will be destroyed. After that comes the 70th week. That's found in verse 27. The 70th week, or that final seven-year period, features another prince figure, not Jesus. He's otherwise referred to as the Antichrist, this other ruler. He will commit the abomination of desolation and, and bring about great destruction until he himself is finally destroyed. And it is this final seven-year period in Daniel's prophecy that is otherwise referred to as the Great Tribulation. Okay, so the question here is whether there is a 2,000-year gap between Daniel's 69th week and 70th week, which is to say that tribulation time is still future, hasn't happened yet, or whether the tribulation already happened after Jesus came, that the 70th week already happened after Jesus came. If you don't even know why this question is being asked, it has to do with the debate between preterism and futurism. Preterism is a view of end times prophecy that sees most of biblical prophecy fulfilled in the past, usually around AD 70, which is when Israel, or rather Jerusalem, and the temple were destroyed. Futurism, however, believes that while AD 70 might be a type of the great tribulation to come, that biblical prophecy still awaits a full and complete fulfillment in the future, hence futurism. I'm going to spend a little extra time to help you sort this out because it's very interesting how this debate has become relevant again. Preterism is making an interesting resurgence, mostly among the leaders of the new apostolic reformation and the hyper-Calvinism movements. These leaders teach that with preterism, most prophecy has already been fulfilled, which means in the future, there's not going to be an antichrist figure. There's no time of tribulation on the earth. There's no apostate church. There's no harlot church. All that was fulfilled. It means in the future that nothing really bad is coming. We have prosperity in the future until Christ comes. Instead, they believe it's up to them to lead a great revival that will Christianize the entire world where signs and wonders become the norm. They will do this by conquering the seven mountains of, cu- of culture, which will then usher in Christ's second coming. The seven mountains being education, religion, family, business, government, arts, and media. There's already so much falsehood in the new apostolic reformation and hyper-Calvinistic movement. This just adds to it. The sad reality is if futurism is true, in that future tribulation, it's going to be such people who are easily deceived by the false signs and wonders of the tribulation who will end up joining the Antichrist and making up the harlot church. Now, I have to say, not all preterists are created equal. 
a great number of them are very godly men and otherwise completely orthodox. There are strong brothers in Christ. But it goes to show that, look, theology matters. This view of end times actually greatly impacts how you live in this world, how you interpret this age. What do we expect in this age and the age to come? Theology matters. Now, I do believe preterism is wrong. I'm going to show you why. Now, first, can it be demonstrated that a 2,000-year gap should be inserted between Daniel's 69th week and 70th week? That's the same thing as asking, was end times prophecy fulfilled in AD 70? You have to see, I think all of us here believe that if, if God prophetically promises something, it will come true. We all believe that. If it's promised, it's going to happen. If God has prophetically promised something and it hasn't come true yet, then it's still future. We would all say that too, right? We don't need a proof text telling us that. Our view of scripture tells us that. His word will come to pass. Take Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, which is a classic example. Isaiah prophecies that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Predators seem to ask themselves why why they themselves insert a 2,000-year gap between the first and second half of that verse, because we all do. But the answer is self-evident, because although Jesus came, the government is not resting on his shoulders, hence it's still future. Now, that's the plain essence of futurism, and it's just based on our view of Scripture that it's going to take place, so if it hasn't, it's still future. And so, why do we believe there's a 2,000-year gap between Daniel's 69th week and 70th week? Well, because when you look at all the events of Daniel's 70th week, which Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse, which most of the book of Revelation talks about, that seven-year tribulation period, it's evident they haven't been fulfilled. Therefore, they're still future. Now, I know obviously preterists dispute that, and they claim to the contrary that most of the tribulation prophecies were actually fulfilled in AD 70. And again, this is why the question is being asked. So to really answer the question, you have to demonstrate all the problems with the preterist claim that, that the bulk of prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70. So let's do that. We can't be exhaustive, but let me just give you four huge problems with that claim. Four problems with the claim that most biblical prophecy was fully fulfilled in AD 70. First, national Israel was not restored in AD 70. National Israel was not restored in AD 70. It's often forgotten that the referent to Daniel's prophecy here is not the church. Verse 24, who's this prophecy for? It's for your people and your holy city, meaning Israel and Jerusalem. This prophecy was given in Daniel's hope in captivity of the national restoration and redemption of his people. And while this prophecy does not preclude Gentile involvement, it cannot exclude national Israel and Jerusalem. You have to see how Israel-centric this whole prophecy is. For example, in the context, do you know why Israel's captivity was 70 years? God says in Jeremiah, it was to make up for the 70 times Israel failed to give the land its Sabbath rest, which was to take place every seven years. So in other words, for the previous 77s or 490 years, Israel had been disobedient to God's covenant. That's why they were being judged. 
But God himself will prove faithful to his covenant with them. He will restore them. That's the reason why God gives to Daniel another prophecy of the future 77s or 490 years. It's all about Israel. At the end of the 70 weeks, national Israel will be restored before God. That's only consistent with so many other tribulation prophecies. Just read for yourself Zechariah 12 through 14. It's just one example. At that time, it says how the nations come together to destroy Israel and Jerusalem. But at that point, they fail because God delivers them. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on him whom they have pierced, the Messiah. They will believe. Then the Messiah will return on the Mount of Olives, it says, and rescue them. But of course, that did not happen literally in eighty seven. That didn't even happen figuratively in eighty seventy. Israel and Jerusalem were by no stretch of the imagination delivered in AD 70. They were judged. Israel's complete restoration takes place after the tribulation and is still future. And allegorical attempts to make these verses about the church are, in my opinion, just plain disingenuous with the text. Now, reason two. Preterists themselves believe in a time gap between the 69th and 70th week. Everybody believes in a gap between the 69th and 70th week. This is a glaring inconsistency, though, because, like I said, preterists themselves actually believe there's a time gap between the 69th and 70th week, although they don't often acknowledge it. Look at the text, verse 26. What takes place after the 69 weeks? The Messiah will die, and then the city and the sanctuary are destroyed. Now, look, did the coming and death of Jesus fulfill those first 69 weeks? It says after the 69 weeks. Yes, everybody believes that the the death of Jesus took place after the 69 weeks. But doesn't that mean that Jerusalem and the temple had to be destroyed within, therefore, the next seven years, right? The 70th week, no gap right away. The the temple and the uh, city have to be destroyed. That puts it by AD 40 at the latest, But of course, the temple in Jerusalem were not destroyed until AD 70. And so you see, everybody believes the prophetic timetable of Daniel's prophecy was put on pause after Jesus died. Whether that pause lasted 40 years or 2,000 years is beside the point. There is clearly some gap of time between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. It's plainly inconsistent for preterists to argue against a gap as a matter of principle. Everybody believes there's a gap. And isn't it evident just by the fact that this prophecy is divided into 69 weeks and then one week? That last week is left hanging on purpose because it is markedly different than the weeks that came before it. Reason number three, preterists fail to understand the near and far nature of biblical prophecy. Or at least they fail to appreciate the near and far nature of biblical prophecy. This really gets to the heart of the issue. But so much of biblical prophecy has an intended near and far sense. If you weren't here, go back just a few weeks ago and listen to our Christmas sermon. It was Matthew 1, 23. We took a detailed look at Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth. And that prophecy in Isaiah 7 was fulfilled in Isaiah's own day by his own son. And it was fulfilled, though, in a near initial and partial sense. The text itself however, leads us to believe that at the same time, it awaits a far, full, and final fulfillment, which of course came in Christ when it was literally 
fulfilled as a virgin birth. Take also the Davidic covenant promises to David. Promises God made of his son were initially fulfilled in David's son Solomon in a partial, near, limited sense. But still clearly await a far, full, and final fulfillment, which was, again, in Christ. You see this all over the place in biblical prophecy. Daniel 9 is no exception. Look again at verse 26. And you'll notice it never says these events take place in the 70th week. This takes place after the 69 weeks. But it never says this is in the 70th week. Like we already stated, everyone believes there's some gap between the 69th and 70th week. But after the 69 weeks, the Messiah dies. The city and the temple are destroyed. And listen, I fully believe this verse is talking about A.D. 70 which is when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. You know, futurists don't deny that AD 70 was a hugely significant prophetic moment. AD 70 does fulfill verse 26, which is the near sense to this prophecy. But AD 70 is not the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. AD 70 didn't take place in Daniel's 70th week. Notice the text never says that. The 70th week does not show up until verse 27. Here's one little subtle difference that I've never seen preterists really pick up on. Verse 26, who destroys the temple? Who does it? It's not the prince figure from verse 27, who's otherwise the Antichrist, right? He doesn't destroy the temple. It's the people of the prince who destroy the temple. Do you see that yourself? And it says the people of the prince who is to come. When Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed after the Messiah is cut off, the Antichrist is not even on the scene yet. And Preterists often overlook this. I've read them. They go to great lengths to try and make Roman rulers like Nero or Vespasian or Titus fill the Antichrist figure. But look, verse 26 doesn't even say the Antichrist was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It was the people of the prince who is to come. He's still future. Instead, it was the Romans who destroyed the temple in AD 70. That is in fulfillment of verse 26. But the Antichrist is not on the scene in AD 70. But according to Daniel's prophecies, it fits perfectly to call the Romans the people of the prince who is to come. And this in turn only corroborates with Daniel's other kingdom prophecies. You can't just read Daniel 9 in a vacuum. You have to know Daniel's kingdom prophecies. And in his kingdom prophecies, what is all as the last kingdom of man before the kingdom of God comes? It's all Rome. But in Daniel's kingdom prophecies, there's something strange about that fourth kingdom, Rome, namely that it's always presented in two stages, a near stage and a far stage. The first stage is identified with ancient Rome, but the second stage is identified with some revived Roman empire. It's characterized by a confederation of 10 kings, which is then overtaken by a little horn or antichrist figure. And there's no parallel to that at all in Roman history. But that being said, it's not surprising to find here in Daniel 9 another reference to the final kingdom of man, Rome, in both its ancient and future forms. While AD 70 can legitimately prefigure the desolation of the tribulation time, it was not the tribulation time. It was not Daniel's 70th week. And preterists just need to better grapple with the intended near and far sense to a lot of biblical prophecy. 
Now, lastly here, just speaking of Daniel's 70th week, one more, one more reason why I, I'm never convinced of the claim that prophecy is all fulfilled in AD 70. Simply that, number four, the events of Daniel's 70th week don't fit AD 70. That's what we said at the beginning. Daniel's 70th week here in verse 27 is that seven-year period. It's known otherwise as the tribulation time. And it parallels the seven-year tribulation spoken of in most of the book of Revelation, Christ in the Olivet Discourse, and elsewhere. And I know preterists try really hard to make the events of AD 70 fulfill all those tribulation prophecies, but it just doesn't work. You can read for yourself all the attempts of preterists to connect Roman generals to the Antichrist, but again, they don't work. Most go with Titus, who led the Roman army into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, but he never made a covenant with Israel for seven years. He never broke that covenant after three and a half years. He never set up an idol in the temple for three and a half years, committing the abomination of desolation, and so on. None of that happened around AD 70. In addition, verse 27 says that this prince himself is destroyed after the 70 weeks. He himself is judged, but Titus returned to Rome a hero and later became emperor. So many preterists really try to find literal parallels with the Roman Empire and these prophecies, but it doesn't work. They eventually give up and resort to allegorical interpretation to make it all fit. The problem with this, however, is that we're given a literal precedent for these prophecies over and over again. Both Daniel and Jesus give us a literal precedent to understand their words. In the near prophecy of the destruction of the temple, didn't Christ himself say, not one stone will be left upon another? That was unthinkable. No way that could be literal. But when that literally happened in AD 70, it was meant to be like a down payment on the rest of their words, that you might know everything else they said is going to come to pass just as literally. It's ironic, really, that there's one verse that all preterists interpret with the strictest literalism. It's from the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 34, where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And to them, this has to be literal. This generation won't take, uh, pass away. I actually agree. It's literal. But the thing is, they, they reason that Jesus could not have meant anything but the generation of the apostles. No exceptions. It couldn't be, possibly, the generation that witnesses the signs. But to uphold this, preterists then go on to sacrifice the literal sense of everything else. Nothing else in the Olivet Discourse or the book of Revelation means what it clearly seems to mean. So, for example, in the discourse when Jesus says in the tribulation, nations will rise up against nation. It just means Rome will rise up against Israel. When Jesus says in the tribulation, the gospel will be preached to all the nations, it really just means just to the Roman Empire. And when Jesus says in the discourse that the time of tribulation will be the worst calamity to strike the earth ever, it really doesn't mean that either. It's just 8070, which wasn't that bad in global history. It wasn't even a global conflict. The inconsistent hermeneutics of preterist continues because in their primary text, doesn't Jesus say this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, right? He says all these things will take place before this generation passes away. Well, this is their main proof text. Doesn't that include the second coming? Because that's part of all these things. He went on to talk right after this about the second coming. So here's a question. How do preterists get by with inserting a 2,000-year gap between the end of the tribulation 
in AD 70, apparently, and the second coming of Christ. Where does that gap come from? Really, to be consistent, they have to see the second coming of Jesus at AD 70. And guess what? There's a very, very small number of preterists who believe that. They're known as full preterists, and they believe Jesus came back in AD 70, spiritually. They believe the resurrection of the dead took place in AD 70, spiritually. And they believe we are now living in the new heavens and the new earth, spiritually. At least they're consistent. But I've always said, if this is the new heavens and the new earth, that's the most depressing prophecy ever. (laughs) But overall, I believe our preterist brothers are just missing the point and failing to grasp the nature of a lot of biblical prophecy. Why did the Jews reject Jesus the first time he came? Because they failed to recognize the near and far sense of so many messianic prophecies. And preterists are making the same mistake. They're, they're nearsighted. They can't see far away. They can only see close up. Preterists create a false dichotomy between AD 70 fulfillment or future fulfillment. And they choose AD 70. But not only is this based on poor and inconsistent hermeneutics, the whole issue is not an either or. It's a both and. AD 70 was in fact a near initial and partial fulfillment to some biblical prophecy. But but it was given as a down payment that you might know a greater, final, and full fulfillment is still on its way. Scripture makes that crystal clear as well. We're left to believe that, that troubled times are still coming. We need not fear one way or another, but we need not be deceived. We need to keep our eyes open and always be sober-minded and on the alert. Our time is more than up, but I'll say if you want to learn even more back when I preached through Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse, two full sermons really take this issue of timing a lot further. You can find that the sermon titled, The Question of When and the Signs of the Times from Mark 13 on our website and learn even more. But I think that'll do it for now. We'll come back next week and continue to answer some of the more questions from scripture. Let's finish in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this time in your word. And if anything, Lord, we, we've learned this morning that uh, your word is, is true, it's valuable, and it, it needs to be handled well. And that is always by reading it according to the context. We see that time and time again, Lord, you do not give your word in some hidden mystical meaning that we have to need a dream or a vision to interpret. You, you give us a plain sense of your truth to those uh, fueled by the Spirit with, with plain eyes to see in the text and its context. Your word is, is true. It's simple. It's clear. It makes sense. And we need to behold it. We need study. There are indeed things difficult to interpret. But we pray you humble us before your word. We as Bereans simply want to get it right. Keep us humble before your word. Uh, But at the same time with a hunger and appetite to to see what it says. To see if these things are so. To find out what they mean. Our desire, Lord, is just to live rightly before you. And to honor you. To worship you with our lives in this age. So be with us and be gracious to us as we humbly seek to to, to come before your word. And uh, live before this God. We give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.